Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers looking for better ways to serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. This is John Simon. Our guest today is Bernard Brown. Bernard is from the other side of the state of Missouri, Kansas City, and he's spent his career doing consumer law. So that's our topic today. Bernard, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, but you call it the other side of the state. We say St. Louis is the other side of the state, just so we're clear on that part. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Just tell me how one gets from St. John's College, which is apparently a philosophy program, to being a consumer attorney. Tell me your career arc from those two points. Well, I really started before St. John's when I was a young. I helped my brothers with our motorcycles and we were cheated by motorcycle shots. And I saw people cheated by pretty conniving businesses and cars and stuff like that. That was always, bullying always bothered me. So St. John's was really on that same path. And from there, it flows fairly naturally. Once I got out of law school, I will say there was a, a trigger point. I bought a car that turned out to have a rolled back odometer in 1983. And the, actually the big trigger was, wasn't so much that. I, I could see that it was done commonly. But when I talked to law enforcement people about it, I mean, we had this guy cold. I had worked in a DA's office. We could have nailed this dealer. And even the feds did investigation on our Domner stuff, but they wouldn't prosecute. And they started crying on my shoulder. These good law enforcement people were complaining to me, saying they couldn't get prosecutors to take these cases. They were telling me how horrible it was out there and how people couldn't get attorneys. And when they were describing all this stuff to me, they sent cases to me that were co-workers of theirs. Those were my first cases, but that's why I took it so seriously was that I could see from the beginning that it was such a widespread industry problem that even the law enforcement people complained and there was no law enforcement in it. And so one step, all, all I can say, and I think that John and you have followed similar paths, you, you get going and you dig in deeper and there's just more and more of it and more to understand and more you can do. You're involved in a couple of the major consumer organizations. You have some, some serious involvement in those. Could you describe those organizations? Well, the first one that I'd be most pleased to tell people about that, that so few people really know about is called the National Consumer Law Center in Boston, which is an old kind of post-Ralph Nader think tank, got started in like 1968. And they, from the beginning and through today, they have written manuals to help, especially legal services attorneys across the country, handle consumer law. The NCLC is based out of Boston with an office in Washington, but they're, they're a bunch of monks. They're very non-self-promoting. They work, they do all this hard stuff and the amount of consumer law there is out there, just it would astonish most any attorney that wasn't familiar with it. And their manuals are fabulous and they've never been profit oriented and their manuals are ridiculously inexpensive. So National Consumer Law Center in Boston, and I've dealt with them since the late eighties and I'm a contributing author to their auto fraud manual. The other national organization I've had particular involvement with is the National Association of Consumer Advocates. Now that's a national organization of consumer practicing attorneys, as opposed to a bunch of research thinkers and uh, lobbying type public interest sorts. It's, these are the actual practicing attorneys across the country. We've got like 1,500 members. I was a co-founder of it in 1992. I helped lead the room when we put it together. 
And there are about there were roughly 1,500 members at last I knew and all across the country. And we've got some vibrant listservs uh, in consumer law, as does the National Consumer Law Center. When I first started into this field, it seemed to me that there is a Missouri Consumer Fraud Statute, Chapter 407. But then as I got into it more and more, I realized that you got to wear a lot of hats. It's an overwhelming field. It's like It was like drinking out of a fire hydrant at first. Are you finding similar things where people step in and they, they're feeling a little overwhelmed at first of the scope and breadth of what it means to be a consumer attorney? Yes, I would say it's pretty common for them to feel rather astonished at how much there is they can learn and how much there is to know if you want to do particularly well. So it's it could be daunting. It can also be a basis of enthusiasm. My gosh, look how much you can know. And it gives you real it's serious advantages once you get to know a lot of this stuff. Can you give us some just overall scope of how big the problem is and how, how easy it is to connect up with either the attorney general's office to help you or that whether you need to go find your own attorney for this sort of thing? I don't want to sound to be overstating things, but I will tell you that there is an astounding amount of fraud, real fraud. It's certainly deceptive and unfair and abusive practices in the consumer realm. And just to point to a couple things, by the way, everybody's heard of the mortgage meltdown 2008 when things really went south. Well, I would put my name on the proposition that in this country, there have been literally millions of people who lost their homes through that whole process who were cheated, not deliberately overstating their income, not deliberately buying something they shouldn't be buying, but were outright cheated. And I would give that as exhibit A. And the way the fraud fraud works is it's silent. It doesn't advertise itself when these things are going on. You don't see that. Many, many, many victims never know that they were actually victims of something that was really deliberate fraud. But gosh, how many people on this call have heard about this? Wells Fargo, for example. Absolutely. What is with yeah. just, I mean, that's just like one of many examples I could point to. But what do you mean? A giant bank institution of trust actually willfully, deliberately stealing from people's accounts basically across the country. And let me pause to mention how many people have we heard of doing the perp walk or being criminally prosecuted in connection with things like this? Wells Fargo, anybody? Anybody? The mortgage meltdown, anybody ever do the perp walk? We have seen a steady decline in law enforcement, and it was very thin before. But these things are astonishing. I could point to example after example, and I could give you concrete data supporting what I'm talking about. And there are many, many levels of fraud, too, because you have what's what's a fraud when it's 60 bucks or 20 bucks on one on a transaction? Well, it's pretty big when it's on 10 million transactions. And we go on. Is there a particular industry or industries where most of this consumer fraud occurs? Well, speaking directly, for starters, like the one that I know best, the auto industry, it help, it, it's rampant. And I could give you chapter and verse and give you examples. Anybody who goes to buy a car could listen to me talking in their ear and they'd say, oh, yeah, look, at they're doing this, they're doing that, and other things are going. The auto industry is full of it and pretty much always has been. Certainly the main consumer players, like auto, now I would say banking really makes me raise my eyebrows. I don't know. Mortgage stuff, there's still lots of abuses there. What types of cases have you handled typically other than auto? Well, I haven't done a lot outside of the auto realm in consumer stuff, but I did work with legal aid 
quite a bit back in the early 2000s on some mortgage stuff, which is, I, I, I can only say, I saw all that coming. Once you start seeing really clear examples in the mortgage realm, where you're seeing outright fraud in these forged documents, falsified income stuff, and you see that it's a practice. So that's one realm that I worked in a fair bit. I did some class stuff. It's still car related, but car finance related and subprime lending. Worked one really major 11 year class action and on a couple of others. Those are the ones I've worked on. All right. So if, if we can turn toward uh, Missouri's prime consumer fraud statute, it's chapter 407. Tell us about that statute and what you can do with it as an attorney. If you have a client walk in and they've been, they think they've been ripped off. Generally speaking, Missouri's the Merchandising Practices Act, Chapter 407. It is important to understand that I believe at last count all states have one of these, and it's called the National Consumer Law Center calls them unfair and deceptive acts and practices statutes, They're mainstream consumer statutes, consumer protection statutes, which vary quite a bit in terms of remedies, scope, power, etc. Missouri's Merchandising Practices Act. Uh, from the earliest case that it, it was passed in late 60s, but the consumer remedies part were action was in the early 70s. Generally speaking, a very broad prohibition against unfair or deceptive practices and people who buy things and suffer harm as a result. Generally speaking, there's a very wide and very powerful coverage. The statutes alone are pretty widely, broadly worded, but there's all, there are also regulations that have the force of law passed by the attorney general quite some years ago that make it even broader. Now, there are some exceptions. There are some entities that are get excluded from coverage, but that's the broad brushstroke of Chapter 407. Pretty darn powerful with powerful remedies. There's been tort reform just passed, effective in Cases filed in August that makes it harder considerably to get punitive damages, but you can get actual damages and punitive damages and attorney's fees. And in proper cases, gosh, it's been very powerful for those remedies. Plus, it has provisions that have been somewhat weakened now uh, for class, class actions to be brought. But consumer cases is a huge wide swath of possible cases that is a primary tool, though, in consumer law in Missouri. That's a powerful set of, of law that a, a lot of people underappreciate. I just handled an arbitration where this is going to be key because there was a disclosure required by a timeshare operator. My argument is that they hid it by uttering half-truths to the consumers and hiding it also by formatting. It needs to be 18 point. Well, what they did is they put paragraphs of fluff before it and after it in the contract and they made everything 18 point. So lo and behold, I went into the, the rules and there's something called deceptive format. You can't make the format deceptive. And I, I hadn't realized that until I just saw that recently. There's also a regulation that prohibits half truths. So it's a very expansive set of definitions and regulations. And the jury instruction, as you and I have both seen, is, is really, uh, really broad. So it's the bread and butter statute in Missouri. Yeah, if someone is looking at handling a case that might be consumer case, ordinary person for personal, family, or household purposes has bought or leased something, step one is certainly to, to look at Chapter 407 and 
407020 and the 025. You're absolutely right. That's an important thing to remember just how broad, very broad the sweep is. And the Missouri Supreme Court has characterized the statute as basically prohibiting almost all kinds of unfair, deceptive practices. And unfair is obviously a huge word. They say it. I guess most of the cases that you handle, are they handled as individual cases? Or are they handled as a group or as a class? It just, it seems to me that probably a lot of the consumer fraud cases, the amounts involved don't make it, I guess, economically feasible to, to pursue them individually. My own choice was after handling a couple of major class actions, I've tended to steer back towards individual cases. And that's a, that's a choice that's got to weigh a number of elements. But you're absolutely right. If you actually talk about consumer fraud, for example, like the Wells Fargo example I just mentioned, if you have a few hundred dollars or a thousand or two thousand dollars at issue, who's going to really lawyer up and make a big case out of that? That's exactly where so much of this fraud lives. And either it's handled with a class case which is entirely appropriate for that kind of claim, or you have some oddity where some lawyer would take a case on the hopes of making, getting some large recovery, but economically it gets very unrealistic to handle the small cases, which are numerically, that's where there's an ocean of fraud. They know it's the world is built that way that businesses can cheat people of $50 here, $100 there, $1,000 there, and absent a class action, there's not going to be law enforcement. Nothing's going right. to happen. They, they can get them. away with it because the amounts are so right. small. It's and trouble, people like right. you and I, and we're not going to be telling a lawyer, yeah, go take that case. We're going to say oh, that's unrealistic economically. But when you get to leverage it up with showing pattern and the potential for punitive damages, that's where things get economically viable for individual cases. But that's, as you know very well, that's not for... The amateurs, if you're going to get into class stuff and you haven't done it before, make sure you connect with the class attorney who really does know this stuff and have them work you through your first couple of cases. Let's say you, you have a case that's worth $1,000. Someone comes into your office and you're a, an attorney who hasn't handled these kinds of cases before, but you know that the Missouri Act does provide for attorney's fees. And let's say it looks like a very strong case and it looks collectible, but let's say the defendant doesn't want to settle. They want to, they're going to insist that you file the suit and go all the way and maybe even appeal. And you're thinking, well, this could be $10,000 worth of attorney's fees to try to get $1,000 of, of recovery. What is your experience about whether the courts will honor the work you do as opposed to looking at the amount recovered and saying, I'm just not going to, you, you only got $1,000 back, so I'm not going to give you all, all the work you did. I hate to say don't do it, but I'm going to say don't do it because it's just not economically realistic. Could it be done? Yeah. If you And there, you know, there are arguments for enhanced fee awards where there's risk involved. And then there have been some pretty darn good fee awards in Missouri, but that's, that's a tough road to hoe. Is there a particular element in 407 in the Merchandising Practices Act that is, is the most troublesome, the, the hardest to prove or the hardest element to meet? The new version that's going to be effective next month, as I recall, has some strengthening about the standards of showing intent and showing that you actually suffered harm. There, for some consumer cases, depending on what they are, showing that you suffered an actual injury, uh, causation does kind of effectively get into the realm of reliance, old reliance on common law fraud. That can be 
a bit of a problem. As I understood it, reliance wasn't a part of the statute. Is that, has that changed under the new law? No, it's absolutely not a part of the statute. It's, and it's really cleared up in the regulations say that it's not there. That being said, one does have to show damages suffered as a result. I like that big picture. Up in front of a conservative judiciary and in arguing to the public, I, I want to be able to say this is for real now. This isn't a gotcha. This person really did suffer damage. And I look for larger fairness. And there's nothing like taking a case that's founded on honest to God fairness and honest to God revealing some outright dirty, rotten cheating, especially on a wide scale. So eating around the edges, things I, I will say at some level, reliance is kind of in the background, even if you're only talking about quote unquote causation. But it's not normally troublesome if it's a really legitimate case in the first place. Other things I would talk about are the exemptions. There's been quite a bit of talk about the regulated entities exemption, the insurance companies, finance companies, and whether they're exempted from coverage. And that kind of is going back and forth. There's a recent case out of your Eastern District Court of Appeals that really kind of hinted about that. I think they might be getting it that that exemption should not really let the insurance and finance companies off the hook just because they're quote unquote regulated entities. There's an exemption written into into the main 407 statute, 407020 about them, but that's there to be litigated and that's that's an issue, a, a serious issue. There's nothing like a pattern and practice of a bad act. If there's knowledge of bad things going on and a, and a business doesn't do anything about it and has done it to other people, it seems like that's a big deal in any suit. Your comment on that? Yeah, that eight circuit, two eight circuit cases on Grabinski versus Blue Springs Ford. Actually, that's pretty good for a couple of purposes. To tell your listeners about this, a lady came into our office. She bought a, a GMC Jimmy for $5,500 from Blue Springs Ford Wholesale Outlet here in Kansas City and was told it was uh, perfect condition. One owner never been wrecked. And it turned out to have been totaled, had four prior owners, and the engine blew within nine days of her driving it. Well, they made her sign a document. She was 22 years old. She signed a document saying, I acknowledge I'm buying this vehicle for salvage, rebuilding, or junk only, and it's unsafe for use on the roads, et cetera. And they had her sign that to basically, that was their get out of jail free card. If they got her to sign it, they were, she, sure enough, she goes back to them and she said, well, you signed this, you can't do anything. And she came to us and she sat across from me and I showed me the papers. I saw this one. I said, what is this? And she said, I know I shouldn't have signed it. And I said, well, what is it? And she said, I just didn't think, oh, tears start rolling down her cheeks. I didn't think three grown men had just lied to me. They told me I had to sign it. They said the law required me to sign it. Well, what was going on there, folks? It was deliberate, really bad fraud, because what they did was they planned that fraud all along, including having her sign this paper that basically said, I didn't rely on anything you said. And, and I was mad. And I looked up some law and said, misrepresentation of law can be actionable if they claim expertise. I didn't know that. I thought you're presumed to know the law. And I took the case and we pushed it really hard, aggressively saying that was part of the fraud. To have this person sign a waiver disclaimer like this was part of your plan. And we beat him over the head with that. And all I can say is it ultimately played very well with the jury and with the judge and with the Eighth Circuit, not once but twice. They got it. Um, the, the very idea of, uh, of you'll see waivers and disclaimers of all kinds out there. 
in the right case, you can push that back against them. That's a case that's, there it is, reported in the Eighth Circuit. There was a fraud case upheld in, in, with big punitives in wonderful fashion uh, where there was an outright get out of jail free card uh, that we, we the truth, the truth was that was part of their plan. So I, that's, I do like that as an example of. Bernard, what was the result in that case? You tried it. What did you ask the jury for? What did, the, what did they come back with? What happened on appeal? We got a total judgment of 200 and something thousand dollars. This is 1994, I think. And then uh, attorney's fees and the judge, it was all upheld on liability on the first appeal, but they the judge hadn't really reviewed the punitives properly. So they sent it back and then he reviewed reviewed them and upheld them again, but he refused to award attorney's fees. And so the second one, they said, you will now award full attorney's fees. And the punitives were upheld in smashing style. It was a lovely, lovely decision. You could see it. You know very well what I'm talking about when I say, look, if you actually hit, get the judges where they live, yes, they got it. And they didn't like these guys at all. The great thing I think about the cases that you're talking about not only are you doing a fantastic job for your individual client, but think of what the chilling effect. When a judgment like that is a public record, that does more to stop fraud than anything else. It's the whole deterrent effect, knowing that, hey, look, if we do this, this is what can happen. That's the whole idea. That's what was actually in, as you know, in the jury instruction itself. The jury may assess an amount of punitive damages to punish this defendant and to deter this defendant and others. That's the whole purpose is to send a message like that. And I'd say in this region, certainly, I would say there's no question that our cases have really done more to police the marketplace of that kind of fraud by dealers than any, there's been no law enforcement. And I, we constantly get people calling us, you know, this dealer says they're scared to death of you. Well, yeah, they should be if they're really doing this kind of stuff. What would you say are your one or two, not necessarily because of most satisfying cases? Gosh, recent one was Carrie Peel's case. This is a lady who bought a car 2008. Well, the mortgage meltdown was happening. And what happened to car dealers? A lot of car dealers went out of business. So they named Carrie Peel bought a car from a small used car dealer, went into register. They said, you don't have the title. She went back to get the title. The dealership is gone, closed, out of business. And she couldn't find it and couldn't get a title. Well, of course, she financed the car. The finance company Second, maybe second biggest subprime lender in the country called Credit Acceptance Corporation out of Detroit. And she calls them and said, where, where, I know, where's my title? Do you know, they don't know. Well, where's the dealer? We don't know that. Let us know if you find out. Well, what do I do now? Well, it doesn't matter what the dealer did to you. You still have to pay. Now, I can tell and everybody in this podcast should know that is a standard statement by finance companies that hold the loan paper where somebody finances something. They will tell you, the, the consumer, you still have to pay no matter what the seller did to you. That is a blatant lie. There's a federal rule on that, and it's in every one of these contracts. And they are subject to all claims and defenses you could bring against the seller. And so she went on paying for a couple of years and only, and, and was in great, so she couldn't sell the car. She was trapped. And if you have a car without a title, you can't sell it. Her, her credit was tied up. She couldn't buy another one. And she had to drive it. She got ticketed. The police threatened her. She finally lost her job, went to legal aid. Legal aid came to us. And Dale Irwin and I took that case on when the finance company wouldn't back off. 
And what does the finance company do? But dump on you even worse. When she asked them, well, I'll give you the car back. They said, if you do, we'll call it a repossession. It'll hit your credit. We'll sue you, get a deficiency, and then we'll come and, and garnish your paycheck. So we established that whole pattern. And what it, what it really was and is, is an industry pattern. And that did not sit well with the, I'm really particularly pleased that not only did it, we got a million dollar verdict out of the jury with only $11,000 in actual damages, but it got then upheld by the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals decision was smashing. Yeah, I remember uh, got, reading about that. What a fantastic result. What a fantastic result. It's there. You you know, that's what you, you and I have, have learned how there's so much behind the curtain. It takes a lot. And, and you've got to be thinking. Don't just think like you're the person at the complaint counter and you're mad at the person that crossed you at the counter. No, no, no. Who are the bosses and what did they put together behind the complaint counter? What's the system back there? And thinking like an executive and thinking, how are they making their money? How is this actually working? Well, it's as clear as can be. It's finance companies. When they want to play with the devil of all these bad dealers, they want to make money. The more dealers they sell cars with, the better. But who gets holding the bag when the dealer goes out of business? The finance company goes, we're still going to collect somewhere. They collect from consumers who are innocent. I didn't realize that, that the credit company is subject to the same defenses as the seller. I had no idea until I just heard you say that. Of course, we got them when they made their false statements to her that she still had to pay. We brought fraud and 407 claims against them for their own conduct, which is not limited to the amount that she paid in. And then there's a recent just Frazier case came out in your court of appeals just like six weeks ago. It was also a case involving a car with no title, and it talks about, uh, even without federal law, the UCC basically saying the finance company stands in the shoes of the seller for all purposes, duties, and rights. So they can be held liable even by UCC theory uh, from that case, and that's, that's strong. I think the judiciary is maybe kind of getting it that all these debt collection companies all these people collecting mercilessly should not be treated like they're quote unquote holder in due course or something like that. They should have to live up to everything that the seller, and if the seller did something wrong, they should be held responsible. That can really change the playing field in debt collection generally where these things are assigned, where there are lots of wrongdoing in the original sales, which is often there, and oftentimes attorneys don't know to look. I heard this from another lawyer that, that I worked with years ago. Jurors don't give money, they take money. And whenever we pursue a case, you know, they're not consumer fraud cases, I always look to the motive behind what happened, not just what happened, but why did it happen? What caused it to happen? Was it a profit motive? What were they doing? And most of the time, I think if you dig enough, that's what you're going to find. You're going to find some company making conscious decisions, profits over safety, not testing things, all of these things that people get mad, people get angry, jurors get angry. And and that's what happens. I think that most attorneys, the vast majority of attorneys, don't start thinking enough early enough on about what really went on here, what all were the systems, who at the managerial level was thinking what, where would they be making money, how would they be deceptive if that's what they were doing, how would this method work, who's motivated to do it. And I will always, before even taking a case, I want to be able to sit there and put myself in the shoes of the executives who were deciding stuff. And normally there's lots of little bits and pieces that point you in the right direction. I also want to identify if it's not fraud, I want to know. If it's a screw up, I want to understand. But trying to understand at that level 
is critical. But it's one satisfying thing. Find out why it's happening. Most of the time, we deal with mistakes at hospitals or how you de- how a product was designed. And you know, when you look at things a little closer, that product in the cases we handle it just didn't get thrown together. They didn't just pick up a set of plans somewhere and say, "Hey, let's build this." It was a process of decisions, a series of decisions made throughout the course. And most of those decisions involve bottom line, expenses, money, profit. And you're right. It's getting to the why, not what happened, but how did it happen? And to me, the strongest thing in any case is how many times has it happened before? Is it a system? We call them OSIs, other similar incidents. Let me ask you this. Did the punitive damages in the new law that has passed, you said the punitive damage aspect of the Missouri Merchandising Practices Act was changed. Is it too watered down now? Is it not effective? What happened to punitive damages under the new law? I'll only say that having reviewed the statute at one point fairly carefully, I came away with these thoughts. I would still expect to be able to get to punitive damages with most consumer cases if Chapter 407 really would apply. uh, For me, I'd almost welcome. You want to say we have to prove bad intent? Well, usually it's there. Uh, you want a clear, convincing standard? Well, usually it's there. In fact, I've said I'd try cases. But you're not going to win it. With, you're not going to win the case without that yeah. pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, beyond, yeah. beyond a reasonable doubt, if you want to throw yeah. that kind of stuff. But, but there's also yeah. common law remedies. There's common law fraud. One way or another, I think that there's still a lot of room there. So I'm not pleased at all. It was a dark of night kind of stunt maneuver that the law was amended during this COVID stuff. But that's my quick takeaway. I'm not going to vouch that I've got it really right, but my impression was there's still room to get punitive damages in a lot of cases under Chapter 407 and certainly with common law fraud. But by the way, I have to mention, John, what do you think of the Johnson baby powder appellate decision? We'll see what happens at the Supreme Court. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to say. I think the number has a lot to do with it, honestly. What really got the Court of Appeals upholding this was evidence showing, why did they do this? They were making money. They were covering things up. They had bad science. It looked bad for them. And what they do with that? They covered they it up. It. And because yes. why? Because there's so much money involved. We want a capitalist system. Well, we're kind of testing that. Do you really want to encourage these executives to be profit mongers at all, at all costs? Well, that's what they do. And if you don't have a scare, if you don't have real tort remedies or law enforcement on the other side, that's what they will do. They'll do that like the yeah, tobacco there's, there's, industry did. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I can picture them now in a conference room, boardroom, talking about, okay, we've got choice A and B, and this one's going to cost a little bit more. I've seen documents. I've seen documents that affect in product cases where it's actually been considered and they'll they'll keep running something, keep selling something. And then they figure out, even some of the cases, I think some of the automotive product cases that we've handled, we've actually had documents that they've done a cost benefit analysis of anticipating getting sued and, and settling a lawsuit, you know? Well, it's way back before the time of most people who would be listening to this podcast, but the famous Ford Pinto case where the Ford Motor Company, I know it's been reported that on the board, they the Pinto, which would catch on fire if hit from behind because of the gas tank would leak. They r- roughly estimated that they'd have to pay about $200,000 per life per person who died. And they thought, okay, they could afford that. So they kept going. Well, it's the same kind of a, a equation. Anybody can do math, can see that. But when you get to the real human level, think about the executives themselves. And you could be a high level executive at Johnson Johnson or one of these companies. 
And if you start pushing, saying, you know what, this is not right, we shouldn't do this, you know what you will be before too long? Unemployed. Out of a job. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you're paying for your kid's college and you, you're doing you'd all this. You'd be an college. ex-high-level executive. <laughs> now, Eric, if you're going to tell your boss, well, you can't do that. That's cheating people. It would be, you got a problem with that. And you now have the choice of your life. Which fork are you going to follow? Which fork in the road? I have used that argument many times in jury arguments because I'm saying not only are we asking law enforcement and juries and judges and judiciary and the public to stand up against cheating companies that cheat innocent people who work hard, but also to stand up for employees who want to be honest. You know, if you push back against Johnson & Johnson, the top hierarchy, if they're so scared they won't do this kind of stuff, then they're not going to be forcing their employees to be immoral, dishonest cheats. But instead, without enough law enforcement, without enough policing or regulation, without enough public knowledge, without enough real good civil litigation, you have all kinds of otherwise would-be honorable people forced into, pressured into being co-opted and being part of the whole cheating system. And that's one of the biggest offenses of all. Consumer lawyers, what you do, one way to describe it would be to uncover wrongdoing. And I think that by itself is worth doing. Just uncovering things that people are doing that are fraudulent, illegal, cheating people. Have you handled any, I'm thinking years ago, and boy, this was probably 20 years ago, we handled a series of cases in St. Louis, four dealerships in St. Louis advertising, I think it was town cars as executive driven uh, and they had, I mean, they had full page ads. I remember in the paper, you know, executive driven and it's turned out they were rental cars. Actually, you're dating yourself a little because this goes back to the late 1980s. But it used to be, folks, that the way that the rental car fleets worked was that the GM Ford would sell to whatever company. And then that company would own the cars for a while and they would sell them themselves through auctions or whatever. But then in the late 1980s or so, the manufacturers had this genius economic plan to sell more new cars. They would buy these cars back from the rental car companies with fairly low mileage. They would get more turnover. They would have to sell a bunch of cars sooner because of the lower mileage, the changeover in the fleet. But then they had a problem on their hands. They had zillions of cars that were low miles that were now competing with other cars being sold by their dealers. There was a guy out of North Carolina, one particular story I was informed about directly by law enforcement people who went around the country teaching car dealers, here's how you sell those cars that are bought back from the rental car companies. You sell them as brass hat cars. You sell them as executive driven cars from ah, Detroit. There you go. And it did all of a sudden across the country, this happened. In Missouri, I believe that the litigation was triggered when it was an assistant attorney general who bought one of these cars and found something like this. And that kind of triggered, oh, oh wait well, a minute, this is not well, right. You know, I'm sitting here kind of quietly knowing that I might have been instrumental in this. So uh, we had uh, somebody call us in, in the office and said, hey, I, I think this is a rental car, this thing that was supposed to be executive driven. And uh, we checked it out and the title was to a rental car company, sure enough. Then we started doing our own our own search. You know, you can find out cars that are sold and just and You were at the AG's out. office. Were you at the AG's office at the time? Well, I was, and that was right before I was fired for, uh, for finding honest. out that this fraud was so widespread. It involved basically half the new dealerships in St. Louis at the time. 
I won't mention names, but there was an attorney general that was hesitant to bring these cases. It was a big, in my opinion, it was a source of his funding. It was from auto dealers. So it was a nice little scheme. And yes, to agree with Bernard, I had heard about this. There were training seminars, people to go around to the dealerships. And if you can believe this, uh, go to sh shop after shop and tell folks, here's how you can better move these cars. All you got to do is not say the truth, not say that they're rental cars. Just call them executive driven or brass hat or driven by some uh, celebrity and you'll move them a lot faster. And then it went on and on. It involved, I believe, tens of thousands of cars over many years. It was a nationwide thing. It was all across the country. It all happened all at once. And it, it was exploded just with their change in plans, with their relationship with the rental car fleets all over the place. Yeah. It seemed like everybody should get restitution. It was recommended at least $500 or $1,000 of restitution. The, the inside memo at the office was to me, these cases have no value that these are not good cases. And uh, my thought at the time was that they were about the best case you could ever have. It was a systematic lie and a lot of people were hurt and you could bring in an expert to say that rental cars just don't sell as well and they know it. That's why they're telling the lie. I was told that I was not fitting in with the office well at that point. And to make a longer story even shorter, I was asked to take a transfer to a different division, get me out of the consumer division. I refused and I was fired. So um, that was from the uh, attorney general's office of the state of Missouri, correct? Correct. That's Bill Webster. <laughs> Some of us have heard that name. Yes, I, I had my tilt with Bill Webster at one point. I had criticized the attorney general's office under him for failing to bring cases against these car dealers that were selling rollback odometers. I, I had lists of these out there. And uh, the paper at the time was covering stuff like that in Kansas City. And he called me up, this guy from the Kansas City paper, and said, hey, we filed the attorney general a year ago in response to your criticism, filed 18 of these cases here in Kansas City. And we, I just checked on them. Here it's been a year, and only like one of them has anything happened on, and half of them have been dismissed, and the others, nothing's happening. And I talked to the AG's office. They say, well, they can't find people. And I picked up the phone book, and I called some of these dealers. I can find them right here. You have, and I made a comment. I said, that just raises serious questions as to whether the attorney general's office filed those claims for political cover or because they actually meant to enforce the law. Well, Bill Webster apparently hated me for that because the reporter called me back a minute later and he was laughing. He said, he, was, he hates your guts. I said, like, I, w I just wanted to enforce the damn law. Well, it came out about a month later that his law school classmate, Phil Gibson, assistant AG, had been taking payoffs from these car dealers and he went to the federal pen. That was Bill Webster's good friend and buddy. That's before the later stuff that came out that Eric was running across. So, so you might think that this is the consumer fraud division back then, uh, thinking that they were protecting people from it, not committing it. But uh, the <laughs> question is, they were protecting people. The question is, who are they protecting? Yeah. <laughs> I want to hit one theme for everybody to know and understand. There is a spectacular lack of law enforcement in this country against these kinds of abuses from the products liability level through the consumer fraud level all across a fantastic lack of law enforcement. Ask me why. I have a lot of thoughts about it. There's politics and money involved at some level, and it's certainly easy for AGs to do nothing, but they do practically nothing. And I have lots of documentation of that. So all of your listeners need to understand there is a void there. 
that's part of why these things are so widespread. And it's part of why you need to be looking way beyond. But don't even think that because there's an AG on the beat or the Federal Trade Commission, I say FTC stands for Fig Leaf for Terrible Corporations. It makes, <laughs> it makes people think that there's somebody protecting them. You know, that's totally AG. I say AG stands for Anything Goes. Honestly, even if they tried to do it, they couldn't keep up with it. It's a big state. Well, let me just hit one more issue that I think is something uh, that I've seen a lot. And that's where the setup is that the seller will tell the consumer all kinds of things. But then the paperwork is the exact opposite. And a, and a lot of people might run into the situation and think, well, can I even take this case where it's the opposite? You've already given one example of that. But is the case over ever when the paperwork conflicts with what the person says they were told? Well, in and of itself, especially if you're talking about fraud and, and merchandising practices, no, that does not end it at all. All the oral stuff comes in. The parole evidence rule and contract cases doesn't apply there. And oral conduct is every, every bit as much conduct as written conduct. So that much being said, these are things for mature evaluation and judgment and playing them out. But I will say one of my earlier cases on this was in your court of appeals. It's called DeLong versus Hilltop Lincoln Mercury. The plaintiffs included a woman, Becky DeLong, was a paralegal. And the, the dealer wanted to emphasize that in the sale document, the primary buyer's order, it said no representations have been made other than what was stated here on this form, blah, blah, blah. And of course, they signed this form thing, as people always do. But that was a typical slime maneuver trying to beat reliance, trying to say that she knew. And they said she had legal expertise. And the Court of Appeals said you can't use a disclaimer like that to get out from underneath fraud, whether she had legal expertise or not. They, they ran over it. They didn't like it. The basic answer is no. I, that being said, you need to use mature judgment about handling, handling any litigation and what all is going to play out. If you misrepresent what is in papers that are being signed, that is a basis for fraud. And I, I give you the example, Eric, I think I've mentioned to you. Farmer Brown comes in and sits down in front of the attorney for the buyer and he's signing, he's selling parcel one and two of his hundred parcels for $5,000. And they say, yeah, here's his for selling parcels one and two. And he signs the documents, not reading all through them. And it turns out that the documents say he's just sold all of parcels one through 100 for whatever hundredth of what they're worth, that's never going to stand. And that would be in spite of the fact that you signed what should be a binding contract, et cetera, because misrepresentations and concealment conduct designed to keep you from understanding what you're signing or misrepresenting what you're signing, it can be a basis for fraud itself. There's another story that came to mind, and this is when Eric and I were working together was a, a payday loan case. Right. And of course, the documentation says things that are completely the exact opposite of what they're being told. And so Eric pulled out a copy of the document that our client had signed. And the corporate representative was the CEO and I think a trained attorney. Wasn't he an attorney? Right. He was. So Eric asked him to identify the document. Yes, this is a document. And Eric directs him to page two and says, uh, second sentence from the top, first paragraph, can you read that? He says, what? And he goes, could you read it for us? <laughs> Just read the sentence. And it was it was about a 78-word sentence. No, no, it was a it was a 400-word sentence. 400 words. That's pretty good. And this this CEO of the uh, payday loan company, who was uh, an attorney, he couldn't read the sentence in the deposition. 
And so anyway, I get the point was a very effective way to make the point of all this nonsense of, well, you didn't read it. You know, you signed it and you should have read it and it's all on you. The thing about that is that it was an eight point type and there was no spacing, of course. So he kept skipping lines. But the idea was that the consumer should have been able to read and understand this when the executive himself could not read and based upon some follow up questions, didn't understand it either. We can congratulate ourselves about when we have good legal theory to support and facts to support how wrong this kind of stuff is. That being said, we all on this call know judges across the state, their their reflexive reaction is, did you sign it? Did you read it? You should have read it. That is the default setting. It's very understandable where that comes from. After all, if you just totally disregard everything is written, then you don't have any economic railroad functioning anymore, relations among people. I mean, what are writings? You can't just throw them out. So it calls for mature, careful judgment when you're trying to get this on the track of, no, that was really wrong what they did when they had that document signed. Be ready to make that case as to how that really was wrong. Start with making sure you can see yourself that in fairness, what happened was cheating here. And you get into the fraud track and now you can beat it. But you need to protect judges. If you're going to disregard written documents or or give them see them in a different context, respect the fact that, yeah, you're, you're asking judges to get into a realm that off the cuff is uncomfortable. And right. understandable. It reminds me of, of, of yet another story years ago. And boy, this had to be 25 or so years ago. I had a series of cases. I represented about 40 or 50 families who were defrauded by an insurance agent. In some cases, he had them take out home mortgages and took their, their life savings. And they allegedly bought all of these paid up policies. And it was this whole like crazy scheme. And so the agent ends up taking everybody's money, running off with it runs off to Chicago, files bankruptcy. Anyway, he ends up in jail. We're suing, you know, the insurance companies, the insurance companies that he worked for. And we take these day long depositions and the, the client would be there and they'd present the lawyers for the insurance company would present them with this, you know, 40 page document with the fine print. And, you know, in prepping my clients, I would explain to him, do you understand that? And if any of them said they did, I'd say, well, tell me, cause I've read it and I don't understand it. I want you to explain it. <laughs> and so they would battle, well, you read it. Can you read? Can you speak any of this kind of stuff? And and then one of my clients, about midway through this process, I think he was on a, a worked at the Chrysler plant on the assembly line. And he started working when he was in the eighth grade. And I found out in the prep, this guy couldn't read. He literally couldn't read. And of course, we just let that play out in the deposition. And of course, you got the same lawyers. They've got to get the all set up. And is this is the contract and this is your signature and all of this. And you know, and you read it and he said, uh, no, I, I really didn't read it. And then he, you know, basically says, I couldn't read. Your guy told me, you know, the, the, what he said was honest to God truth. And that is, I trusted your agent. You know, I listened to what he said. He told me to sign it and I went ahead and signed it. All of us do that. I mean, I can't tell you how many, I don't read the fine print of every document that I sign. Think about all the, the, the paperwork that you're asked to sign, no matter what it is. I mean, you, you want to open an app or you rent a Netflix film or something. It's just unrealistic to think that people are going to, as a defense, it's unfair. I mean, it really is to cram eight or 15 pages of small print language that nobody could understand, even if they did spend the time to read it. And then it is, it's, it's, I think it's yeah. part of the fraud. I've got saved examples where Chief Justice John Roberts and uh, Posner from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals have come out and admitted that they don't read these things that they sign, that they're bound by all the time. 
or that are part and parcel of these. Anybody who wanted to do a study of it could demonstrate it to be impossible. If you're going to go to LaGuardia Airport and rent a car and stand in line and say, here, I want to read this contract before I get this rental car, the people behind you in the line would kill you on the on the spot. Take an hour and a half, right? It would take an hour and a half. And not only that, but I could also challenge most any judge in the state to read those things. And I would be able to point out things that they truly didn't understand, especially these consumer contracts. I guarantee they don't know what a whole lot of that stuff is. It's absolutely impossible and totally unfair if inflicted that way. But it's the Scylla and Charybdis, the rock and the hard place. I mean, fairness to understanding where the judiciary is in all this. It's like, well, what are we asking to do? Just disregard all writings? And it's really important that we understand, no, that really isn't what we're saying. But the things, it's one thing to have the basic substance of this, like, hey, I'm buying this for $2,329. It's another thing to inflict all these other parts of the form. And then when you have oral misrepresentations about what something is or conduct that conceals it in the car realm, they even call it the technique called the five finger fold, which part of it you cover with your hand when they're signing, things like that. That's different, but we cannot be blind enough to try to take the position that, oh, just ignore the writings. No, that, that, that's where we have to navigate. I've been handling a number of cases involving timeshare resorts where the paperwork is presented as we've already gone through all this, just sign <laughs> here, here, and here. That's the way they do it all the time. Just, we've already gone through this. No need to read it. I've already explained it to you. Just sign here, here, and we'll get you out of here. Well, and they're so trained. It over and over. The car dealer people are trained. Undoubtedly, the timeshare people are trained. This is serious stuff. Uh, yeah, I've seen these scripts or the kinds of things that they're trained to say. Sure. Yeah. Do you have a wrap up? Uh, what you would tell a young attorney thinking about taking a consumer case, something along that line? There isn't any substitute for hard work and sturdiness. If you're interested in consumer stuff, I must say it's totally satisfying to be working for things that if you're doing it right, you're helping build a bigger society, a better society, not a not a worse one. That's terribly pleasing. And to me, it'd be worth I'd work for very little if I had to get to do this. So that's very pleasing. And if you're willing to accept not making as much money, good for you because this is worthwhile. But there isn't any short way is hard work is a way to do it. You can do some smaller cases and be learning your way along and not expecting too much. That's probably a very helpful thought. Don't try to go nuclear with your first case. But if you can talk with other attorneys who know their stuff, give them a call, um, associate with another attorney, join forces with another attorney. These kinds of things, I, I, it helps immensely to be working with somebody else. You already have colleagues to help you along. I encourage that. And otherwise, the hard work and, and steady, sturdy, intelligent judgment, that's the way to go. Well, Bernard, thanks so much for sharing your experience and your time with us. It was wonderful talking to you, and we look forward to having you on the next one. My pleasure. I look forward to it, too. Well, that ends this episode of The Jury Is Out. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time with part two of Bernard Brown. This is Eric Beef And John Simon. Thanks again for joining us. See you next time. John and Eric would like to hear from you. They invite you to email your comments and suggestions to comments at thejuryisout.law. To learn more about the dedicated trial lawyers of the Simon Law Firm, visit simonlawpc.com. 